It is good to be here this morning. I'm Cliff, one of the pastors at Arbor here, and uh, want to welcome those online as well. This week we're continuing our series on priorities, and uh, we're looking this morning at the simple complexity of a priority that Jesus outlined in a parable he told in uh, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 11 and running until 27. He was actually clearing up some things when he told this parable. And uh, in the process, he honed in on one job that he asks us to do and the three responses that people have to that request. It, it reminded me of seeing some of those pictures, those memes. I don't know if you, any of you have seen them of the one job thing, you know. Has anybody seen any of those? Oh, you're in for a treat. Okay, uh, so here's an example. Somebody says, hey, your one job, your one job is to just paint a no-passing line in the road. And here's what you get. <laughs> yeah, just kind of all over the place, you know. Listen, man, your one job, you got one job to do today and only one job only. I want you to go and paint a fire lane next to the curb. In fact, right in it, fire lane. So everyone will know it's a fire lane. You just got one job to do. Here's what you get. A fry lane. A fry lane. What do you do with that? Or how about this? You got one job to do today. Only one. Only one. Just take the slide and put it in the park so the kids can play safely. Would you just, that's all your, just one job and here's what you get. Yeah, right out into the road. So, uh, so this morning we're going to be looking at the one job that we're asked to do as servants of Jesus. And as I was thinking about this and I was thinking about the phrase to use to kind of capsulize this, I couldn't help but think of Lauren Winters and David Piscatelli, who both are in the investment business, uh, who go to the church here. And uh, as I put this sentence together, here it is. Your one job is to invest everything for Christ your King. Yeah, that's your one job. Everything you have and everything you are. Everything that God has given you and every, in every way that he has made you. And in order to do that, we have to ask this question continually. It's a continual question we have to ask ourselves throughout every day. And that is, Lord, how am I doing? What do you want me to do with what you've given me? What do you want me to do with what I have? Lord, what do you want me to do with who I am? What do you want me to do, Lord, with how you have made me? How, how do you want me? What do you want me to do with these things, Lord? And like it or not, when Jesus asks, there'll be one of three responses to that. And here's what the three responses are. One, I don't want Christ to be my king. That's the first response. Second response is, I will do what Christ my king asks me to do. And the third response is, I will not do what the king asks me to do. One job, three responses, every person here, every person watching online, every person who ever hears this message will have one of those three responses. I am praying that this morning you will be honestly, sincerely looking at yourself and saying, where do I really line up here? I think it's important for God to be able to instruct us through that. So uh, let's pray and ask the Holy Spirit to show us that as we open up his word. Lord Jesus, thank you that you speak so clearly through your word and that you want to speak to us, that you want us to hear from you, that you want us in relationship with you. So this morning, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds, open our ears so we can hear you, impress things upon our minds, Lord 
that would make a difference in how we see you, that would make a difference in how we live this out, and that would make a difference in who we are in our lives. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. So now we're going to go to the scripture and see where you are in this parable. We'll begin Luke chapter 19, verse number 11. The crowd was listening to everything Jesus said. And because he was nearing Jerusalem, he told them a story to correct the impression that the kingdom of God would begin right away. So we see right there in that verse that Jesus has got a problem. People have got the wrong impression of what's going to happen. People are thinking that the upcoming triumphal entry is going to be a coronation, not pointing to a cross. And Jesus wants the people to know that's not going to happen. It's not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen. He's letting them know that he will be leaving and he'll be coming back again later. He wanted to correct their wrong impression. You know, I, I got to stop and think about that for a moment. And then I get excited about it because what it tells me about Jesus is this. Jesus wants to clear up your confusion about him. He, he wants to do that. And so if you're confused about Jesus, he says, why don't you ask him about your confusion and be willing to listen, be willing to actually open up the word of God and let him speak to you through it. He loves to clear those things up. He wants you to know how much he loves you and how much he wants to be in a personal relationship with you. A relationship with you that's unique to anybody else because he made you unique. Some of you he made weird, but that's beside the point. Uh, he made you different. We'll just say that. That's a politically correct. Different people, but, but, and he did that because he wants that unique relationship with you that he can only be had with you and you alone. What a great place to be. So he comes and he says, here's some clarity for you, because I also want you to know what I'd like you to do, what I'd like to do with you. That's what, how he wants us to see that. He wants to do things with us in life. And, uh, and so the clarity is this. Your one job is to invest everything for Christ your king. Everything you are and everything that you have. So Jesus is going to tell them this parable now. And a parable, if you recall, is a story that's meant to unfold things, that's meant to make things, make things more clear, to give a deeper meaning. So in other words, when he tells a parable, it really is, is, really is kind of talking about something else as well. Okay, so here we go. Verse number 12, he starts the parable by saying this. A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Now we just got done saying a parable is... Something that shows reflects something else. So the nobleman refers to someone. Who does a noble, nobleman refer to? Anyone? Jesus. Somebody said Jesus. Whoever said that, just you ought to stand up so everybody can see how smart you are. Yes. The nobleman refers to Jesus. And he's saying the nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Remember, he just got done, we just got done reading. He wants to clear something up. They think he's gonna, they're going to make him king right now. And he's going, no, not yet. Not, not on your time frame, on God's time frame, and I'm going to do that. Now, now there is a fascinating historical parallel to this. So Jesus is talking to these people in Jericho. Okay, he's on his way to Jerusalem. And in Jericho, the people there, are, are they're, they're, they've got to be thinking, oh, this is an interesting story because Herod the Great and his son Archelaus had gone... To, traveled from Judea to Rome 
to have Caesar give them the kingdom of Judea. And he'd done it for Herod the Great, and then he did it for Archelaus. When Archelaus went, the people hated him. So the Jews sent a delegation behind him to tell Caesar, don't, don't give him the kingdom, don't give him the kingdom. Caesar didn't listen to him, he gave him the kingdom anyway. And when Archelaus got back, he had a bunch of those guys who, who came and uh, argued against him, killed. And then he builds this beautiful palace in Jericho that everybody knew about. I am thinking they might even have been within sight of that, but certainly they knew all about it because they were right there. So now Jesus tells this story that's an incredible parallel to that. They can picture it, believe me. The people listening were very aware of that recent history. So Jesus starts by this nobleman going into a far country. What higher authority is Jesus going to to get authority for the kingdom that he's leaving? God, God, whoa, a lot of you guys got that. That was good. That was good. Do it again just for fun. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Now, the reason Jesus actually is telling the story is really quite brilliant, isn't it? I mean, the people there are connecting the dots in a minute, man. They, they know about it. And Jesus wants them to know, I'm going to be going away. You don't know this, but I'm going to be going away. I'm going to die. I'm going to go away. I'm going to be dead, buried. I'm going to be resurrected again. And then I'm ultimately going to ascend. And then... I'm going to come back again. I'm going to come back again. And I want you to get that picture. So now he goes on, verse number 13. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, some exchange of money, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. So you see where we got your one job is to invest everything for Christ your king. Now I want you to notice the amount that he gave each servant. It was the same amount, wasn't it? He gave 10 minas to 10 servants. So everybody got the same amount. This is not the same as the story, the parable that Jesus told about the talents where different people got varying amounts and had different expectations and responsibilities with their amounts. This is the same amount for everyone. Now remember, the parable is pointing to something else. And so we got to ask the question, hmm, what is it that's the same that we all have, that we have the opportunity to invest for our king. Any ideas? What do we all have that's the same? Time. We all have time. Yep. Time is an, is an example. You only have how much time is, is how much time is in your life, right? Right. So I think what we're looking at is we all have time. We all have life. And so here's, here's what we're seeing here is each of us have the same resource for the one job. It's our life. Now, some of us will have more of that life than others, but it's one life. We only have one life to give. God created us and gave us that life, as we said, so we could be in relationship with him. Paul writes to the Christians in Ephesus. He gets this, Paul does. And he writes this letter to the Christians in Ephesus and says in Ephesians 2.10, we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. In other words, God created you to do some good works that he's already got planned that he wants to do with you. The question just is, are you willing to do what he's calling you to do? couple more questions before we go on to think about whose money did the servants get? The kings, the noblemen's, the noblemen's, yes. So, so how long were they to do business? 
until he came back, until he came back. So however long that was. Who were they doing the business for? The nobleman, not themselves. He was do, they were doing the business for him. Now, here's a tough one. Maybe not. Where do you do business? Where were they to do business? In the world. In the world. Where do you do business? In the community, in the world, in the marketplace. All of those places is where... Whoa, 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 wait a minute. You mean you didn't come here to do the business? Oh, oh, Jesus wants us to engage in business for him. That means, friends, when we leave the church building is when we are doing business for him. When you leave the church building and you do go to your job in the community, in the world, in the marketplace, when you're a carpenter, when you're a doctor, when you're a teacher, when you're a, a whatever you are, when you go to do that is when you have the opportunity to engage in business for him. Your one job is to invest everything for your king. And by the way, I think we should do our one job without thought of reward. We don't see that the, that the king told these guys, that the nobleman told these guys they're going to get a reward. He didn't. He just said, I want you to do it. And they did it, watch this, they did it because of their relationship with him. They were his and they knew they were his servants, and they wanted to be faithful and obedient servants, and they wanted to be responsible for what he was making them responsible for as his servants. So here's how God wants us to see it. God wants us to understand he owns it all. He owns it all, including our, our lives. The owner has rights. The servant just has responsibilities. The owner owns it. The servant just manages it on behalf of the owner. Every single possession I have comes from God. So, so if that's the way, if that's the truth, then I can possess much and own nothing. You see how that works? I can possess much, I can manage a lot on behalf of my God, but I don't own any of that. God blesses me by sharing his property, his things with me. He blesses me with that. And I have the responsibility to care for it in a way that glorifies him in a way that, that, that I can partner with him in that. And by the way, this applies to everything in our lives. It applies to our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, intellect, memory, even our affections and our privileges are actually given by him to us. And we have the opportunity to determine how we're going to use them for him. Because we only have one job. And that's to invest everything for our king. 
And did you, did you notice that? I love this fact that, that he gave them a tremendous amount of freedom in how they did that. He was not restrictive at all. He didn't tell them where to invest it. He just said, do business till I come back. And, and do business on my behalf till I come back. Wow. So we can either see this as kind of a scary thing. I'm not sure what to do with that. Or we can see it as something completely freeing. It ain't mine. It's yours, Lord. I'm just doing the best I can to manage it for you. It's my job. I, I love the story of John Wesley. He was a circuit-riding preacher who was involved in revivals in England and in America. And the story is told of him that he was out on, a circuit, on the circuit preaching. And this guy catches up with him on a horse and, and, and jumps off. This is the 1700s, so horses were the main mode of transportation. And, and the guy says, uh, Mr. Wesley, Mr. Wesley, I've got terrible news for you. Your house has burned to the ground. And Wesley looks at him and he, and, he, and he thinks about it for a minute. He says, no, no. The Lord's house burned to the ground. He says, I got one less responsibility to be concerned with. <laughs> wow, wow, wow. That's, isn't that a great way to see that? Yeah, let's go on. Verse number 14. But his citizens hated him. And sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Just like Archelaus has happened with him, right? Totally different story here, but they, they got the picture. By the way, this is the first response. I don't want Christ to be my king. That's the first response. I don't want Christ to be my king. They hated him. Sadly, they hated Jesus, the Messiah. And he's actually hated by his people. But here's the thing, the people don't get to decide if he will be king. The father does. The father makes that decision. Now, one of the things as you read the Bible that I want to encourage you on is to notice a lot of little tiny words that are very important and, not, and are there specific for us to, to think about because they make a big difference. And this is one of those places. It says, his citizens hated him. Jesus' words are very carefully chosen. His citizens. And these are the ones, remember, that have said, I don't want Christ to be my king. And yet, he says they're his. Everybody belongs to him. You may reject Christ. You may even hate Christ, but he owns you. He is sovereign over you. You may be an atheist, a Muslim, a Hindu, a Buddhist, but Christ still owns you. You live in his country because he made this world. You are his creation. You are his. Most people, you know, I think want salvation. They just don't want Jesus to be their king, some people, right? Some people say, I want salvation. I just don't, I just don't want Jesus to be my king. If he is who you say he is, I think I'll just do my own thing. And so what they do is they take the gift of life, that God has given them, and they say, thanks, God, we'll take it from here. I got it. I'll, I'll make the decisions from here. I'll decide how I'm going to do what I'm going to do and when I'm going to do it. And I'll decide who I'm going to follow and who my God is, whether it's me or whether it's somebody else. I'll, I'll, I'll make that decision myself because it's about me. And when they do that, they are demonstrating they don't want the king. And therefore, they will not be part of his ultimate kingdom. 
By the way, nothing in this parable that Jesus is telling indicates they had any reason to hate him. So they hated him for no reason. Jesus would say in John 15, 25, they hated me without cause. Wow. So he really is talking about himself. But they didn't succeed in keeping the nobleman from becoming king, and no one will succeed in keeping Jesus off the throne. He will be back. He's been coronated. He's been crowned. And the Bible tells us he's going to come back as king of kings and lord of lords. It tells us that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is king. And he will come back and demonstrate that. And those who hate Jesus Christ and reject the gospel will face Jesus Christ as their king and their judge. That's what God's word says. It's not Cliff's deal. It's God's deal. Verse number 15, when he returned, having received the kingdom, there he got it, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Remember that they were gaining their one job was to invest everything for their king? So he's telling us here that we're going to be accountable for how we do our one job. When Jesus returns, he'll judge our faithfulness, and those who are found faithful will be rewarded generously. And how we handle what we've been given now will determine what's entrusted to us in eternity. And Jesus will be the judge. Verse 16, the first came to him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. You know what? The king rewards us in ways we don't expect for doing our one job. By the way, this is the second response. I will do what my king asks me to do. And how do we get rewarded? By being faithful and obedient. And I love this. It doesn't have to be in a lot. Did you see that? He's not asking you to be Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. He's just saying, just do with what you have. Do with what I've given you. Just be faithful with what you have and obedient with what you have. He says, because you have been faithful in a very little. I think that many times we're not capable of handling a lot. But he'll take us where we're at. And then if we're faithful in a little, he'll begin to give us more responsibility. And we don't see anywhere where any of them were complaining about the amount they got. Or saying, hey, wait a minute, I want more. I want more. You're, I, I'd like a little bit more of this to be able to deal with. I think before asking for more, maybe we should answer the question, how have you used that very little? How have you done with that? It was a dark and stormy night and an elderly couple came into a small hotel in this little town and, and uh, looking for a room for the night. The clerk said, hey, we are sold out and every other hotel in town is also sold out. It's a ways to the next town. Uh, I hate to see an elderly couple like you get back out in the rain in this ugly night. Would you, would you mind just sleeping in my room? You, you, I'm, you're certainly welcome to do that. At first they resisted, but he insisted and so they stayed. 
The next morning, the man came to pay his bill. The clerk was already back at the desk again. And the elderly gentleman said, you're the kind of man who should be managing the best hotel in the United States. Someday, I'll build you one to manage. And the clerk smiled politely at him, thanked him, and you know, thought that was that. It was several years later that the clerk received a letter from the elderly man reminding him of that dark, stormy night and who he was. Inside of the letter was a request for him to come to New York City, along with a couple of tickets, uh, full, uh, full over and back round trip tickets to New York. He arrived in New York and, and the host took him to the corner of 34th Street and 5th Avenue where there was a magnificent brand new building. And he said, that's the building I have built for you to manage. The elderly gentleman was William Waldorf Astor. And that was the first Waldorf Astoria. And George C. Bolt did become the first manager of the Waldorf Astoria. Rewarded in ways he didn't expect for being faithful in a very little with no expectation of reward. Ah, wow, what an example for us about how we can be engaged for our king. Remembering that we only have one job to do. It's to invest everything, everything we have and everything we are for our king. Verse number 20. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? But what is going on here? Ah, this servant is giving us a picture of how he saw the nobleman, how he saw the king. You see, your view of God determines how you live. And a skewed view results in a wrong response. See, if you think he's something he's not, I want you to notice that when, when he repeated, oh, you think I'm this? He wasn't saying, I am this. What he was saying is, really? You think I'm this? Your own words are going to condemn you because that's not who I am. He says he was afraid, and yet if he was really afraid, he would have at least put the money in the bank. To, he would have done something to try to protect that. Here's the thing. He didn't really know the king, but he made up his own story about him to justify his disobedience and his choice not to invest for him, not to do business for him. Some of us demonstrate in how we live our lives that we've chosen not to do what he's asked us to do. We've hidden the gift of the life he's given us in the proverbial napkin so we can do what we want and we can live for ourselves all while ignoring his directions and we've made up stories to justify our disobedience to him. Maybe you know someone like that. Maybe you are someone like that. This servant was not saying he was not king. This servant was not saying he wasn't a servant. 
This servant was saying, I choose not to do what you've asked me to do. I choose to take my own way. I choose to, to recognize you as king, but to, but to do it my way and live for myself without thought of you. In fact, I'm going to intentionally avoid doing that for you. Where do you think we find those kinds of people in our culture today? In the church. In the church, we can find them elsewhere also, but in the church is where we find some of those kinds of people. I've got to be honest with you, gang. This third category scares me the most. It just does. What it's telling us is it's possible to read the Bible every day, to come to church every week, and to still be living for yourself without any thought of your king. It's possible to take everything that God has given you, the life that he has given you, and to hoard it for your own as though you are the point of life. The master is frustrated here. He's frustrated because the subject did nothing with it and really did not take the time or seem to care to know who he was. He just laid it aside, and it was unsecured. Verse 23, the nobleman, the king, says, Why then? Did you not put my money in the bank and at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. If you don't use the gift of your life for the king, you lose it. You lose it. Jesus says you got one job. Until I return, faithfully invest everything I've given you. If you don't use it, you lose it. Verse 25, and they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And at first that seems like to us like, what? That doesn't seem fair. You're right. You're right. God distributes gifts based on faithfulness, not our idea of what fairness is. God says, I, I, you know what? I, I'm basing this on, on faithfulness and on, on the capability, on the willingness to do what I've asked them to do, not fairness or even need. I think there's something really important to understand here because some of you are tracking right now and you're thinking, okay, I think I'm doing everything. I, th I think I'm, I really am trying to live that way. I really am trying to do what he, I'm trying to invest everything for my king, everything I, I have and everything I am. I'm holding it with open hands to him and I'm saying, God, work through me. Show me what you want me to do. But what if I, what if I mess up? What if I'm not doing it right? Can I encourage you? Can I encourage you in that? You cannot mess that up. You cannot. I, I think of Peter. Think of the disciples who ran when they were supposed to be there for Jesus. Listen, friends, if our heart and minds are saying, God, I recognize you as king, and I know what you're asking me to do. I'm going to do my best to invest everything for you, my king. Everything I have, everything I am, I'm going to do my best to do that. And he says, if you do that, you cannot lose. You cannot lose. You will never lose if you faithfully do your one job for Jesus Christ the king. If you do that, and, as, and again, think of Peter. Boy, did he ever mess up big time. And he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you another chance. I'm going to reinstate you because I can see your heart. You cannot mess up that way. Just do your one job to invest everything 
for Christ, your king. Verse 27, Jesus finishes the parable by saying this. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign or be king over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Wow, seems kind of harsh. But they hated the king. They actively opposed his reign, and they will get what they sought after, which is separation from the king. And they'll get that eternally. Here's some good news. Here's some really, really good news. The king has not returned yet. The king has not returned yet. I'm telling you, he's going to return. He's made the promise, and Jesus has fulfilled every promise he has ever made. He's going to return, but he hasn't returned yet. And you know what that means? There is time for mid-course corrections. If you are somebody in that first category, I don't want Christ to be my king. Man, I am begging you to reconsider this. I am begging you to think about this. If you're someone in that third category, and today as we've talked about that, no, I'm not going to do what Christ wants me to do. I'm not going to do what my king wants me to do. And you realize this morning that you've been that person, that you've been living for yourself, not the king of kings, that you've recognized that Jesus is who he said he was, but you live like it's all about you, and you recognize that, now is the time to change that. You can do that. He is waiting for you with open arms to say, come to me and ask forgiveness and it will be there for you. It's already done when you ask. Oh man, what a king. It's not too late to make the main king the main thing in your life. You remember your one job is to invest everything for Christ, your king. Jesus would go from telling this parable to the triumphal entry and then to the cross, all while living a perfect life, which none of us have done. And he's lived that perfect life so that he would qualify. You see, if he had sinned, he could only pay for his own sins. But because he did not sin, he can pay for your sins. And so he would go to the cross to say, I'm going to pay for your sins. And he would die on that cross to pay for your sins so that, that we, by believing in him and accepting his gift, we could have forgiveness and be given life and life abundantly now and for eternity. And he says, that's what I've got for you. I'm the nobleman who is going to a far kingdom. Today he's in the kingdom, and I'm telling you, he's coming back. He's coming back. And he so much wants to be in relationship with you, doing business with you as you go from here and go out there. And then he wants to reward you for that. Who wouldn't want to invest everything for that kind of king? Lord, man, your word penetrates us. It speaks to us in ways that, that sometimes are scary, that convict us, that show us what our, where our heart is at. And, and this morning, Father, I am praying for those who have recognized, who realize that, that they are in a place where they 
have rejected you or they're in a place where they have not lived for you or they've kind of been living for themselves. And, and I pray, Lord, that as we recognize that in ourselves, that we can come to you and say, Lord, forgive me for that. Forgive me for that. I want to take this life you've given me. I don't want to put it in a napkin. I want to use it with you for your glory and my good, Lord, because I know if I'm doing it for you, it's for my own good too. Thank you, Lord, that you understand that. Lord, I pray for those who don't have that relationship with you, who've rejected you to understand how much you love them, how much you want them to come to you so that they too can receive life and life abundantly. Thank you that we have the privilege, Lord, of worshiping you and of praising you and of doing business for you. Help us to do it well. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.